So I've been thinking a lot this week about the life of Corey Ten Boom. Uh, she's become one of my heroes over the past few months since I read her book, The Hiding Place. And the remarkable thing about Corey Ten Boom is just how unremarkable she was. She didn't, leave a, she didn't lead a movement. She didn't have a PhD. She never married. Actually, she led a really ordinary, unremarkable life. And by the age of 50, she still lived in her tiny childhood home outside of Amsterdam with her older sister, Betsy, and their aging father. Imagine Corey Ten Boom or someone like her just sitting in the pews. Unremarkable. You wouldn't notice anything about her. In May 1940, the Nazis invaded and enforced a kind of police state throughout the Netherlands. And Corey watched as uh, the Jewish neighbors in her community were first forced to wear yellow stars to identify them, and uh, then ostracized, and then over time their businesses were shut down, and then quietly, one by one, they were arrested and whisked off, never to be seen again. And in response to this, Corey and her family, who were all devout Christians, they did a simple and powerful thing. They asked God what he was doing and where he was working, then and there. And as they prayed, they discerned that God was calling them to take in Jewish refugees and to help with an underground effort to protect them. This unremarkable woman doing something absolutely remarkable. So over the course of the next two years, they housed eight Jews in their tiny home and helped hundreds more. This was a house that was, uh, in our modern day standards, three people might be uncomfortable in. They had at least 11 at a time. Um, Corey had a secret wall built in her attic that created a little secret chamber behind which uh, her Jewish neighbors staying with them could sneak in and hide in the event of a Gestapo raid. And this was, of course, extremely dangerous business for their family. Uh, they risked being sent to the very death camps that they were trying to save their Jewish neighbors from. And it must have been difficult, I imagine, uh, to know that they could have avoided all of that risk just by washing their hands of the situation, just by you know, going through the regular rhythm, going to church, uh, pretending that everything was okay. Or maybe they had too much going on that week. Maybe the risk was too great. There were thousands of really nice, quiet church people in Corey Ten Boom's day who played it safe and never took the time to listen to what God was doing or never had the courage to respond. Uh, one day, Corey found a young Jewish woman on her doorstep who was holding this tiny, screaming baby. Now, the Ten Booms lived in their, this tiny house in the center of town. They were two blocks down from the police station. Do you think everyone can probably hear a screaming baby in the center of town? Yeah. So it was out of the question whether this baby and, her, and its mother could stay with them. They needed to find somewhere else, somewhere safe, and find it fast. So, and it seemed like something was provided. The very next day, Corey ran into a friend 
who was a minister in a small town nearby. And this minister and his wife uh, lived on a setback street uh, in this nice park. Their house was set back and hidden by all these trees. He, it was just the perfect location. This is the way that the Lord is going to save them. So this guy walks in, um, and, uh, and Corey knows that this is really their only chance. It was the perfect solution. And uh, so she goes up to him, and she asks if he can take in this baby and its mother. And she's quite honest with him. She says, listen, if you don't take him, uh, they are surely going to be arrested and taken away by the Nazis. And she holds this baby out to him, and the man is terrified. And she writes this. There was a long silence. The man bent forward, his hand, uh, in spite of himself, reaching out for the tiny fist curled around the blanket. And for a moment, I saw compassion and fear struggle in his face. And then he straightened. No, definitely not. We could lose our lives for this Jewish child. It's just not safe. And then he turned sharply on his heels and walked out of the room. And so they had to settle for another, much riskier hiding place. And in the end, it didn't work. The woman and her child were both arrested, and they were never heard from again. And I've been thinking this week about the difference between unremarkable Corey Ten Boom and that clergyman, that accomplished clergyman, well-respected as a man of God. One listened and joined in what God was doing, and the other refused to listen and instead cowered behind the excuse of personal safety and then got, off, got up to preach a sermon. And this raises the question for me and for you, what is really safe? Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? You can be as snug as a bug in a rug, in a nice safe house, with a nice safe car, a well-padded 401k, a really great bank account, a success in the eyes of all. And you might be, in spite of it all, in immense danger. That's a reality of Pentecost. The Spirit of God calls you and me to something more. So this morning I want to talk about listening and responding to the Spirit of God. I'm not going to make any kind of suggestion of what you, what you ought to do. Simply listening and responding to the Spirit of God. Make no mistake, this is an extremely dangerous activity that I'm commending to you this morning. But I also want to say that paradoxically, it's the only safe activity. So our text is Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And as you turn there, a little context. Three crucial events have already happened. Uh, one, Jesus has died and risen from the dead. Two, Jesus has ascended to the Father where he's ruling the world. We've been going through the book of Acts in uh, our youth group, and I always say, well, Jesus ascended, and he's on vacation, right? He just peaced out. Is that what he's doing? So he just, he's just like, see you later, guys. Have a good life. 
Hope you can figure it out, church. No. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's ruling over everything. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So who's holding the reins? The risen Jesus. And then three, the Holy Spirit has arrived. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, right before Jesus ascends to the Father, he tells his disciples this. He says, wait in Jerusalem because you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We all know what baptism is, right? Um, actually, in the New Testament Greek, it's not uh, a word for sprinkling. It means to dunk. So you can, maybe you baptized your donut in your coffee this morning. I don't know. Um, but it is to dunk, to, Im- to immerse, to submerge. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, roughly 50 days after the resurrection, uh, the the disciples are together in one house, in one place in Jerusalem, and a rushing wind comes, and what seem to be tongues of fire rest upon the disciples, and they are baptized, they are immersed, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Not some sort of like random life force, but rather the Spirit of God himself, the third person of the Trinity. God himself comes and fills them. And they begin, remarkable things start happening, right? Uh, They start speaking, and uh, they speak in their known language, and then all these other uh, devout Jews from out of town who've come in to worship God, all these God-fearing people hear the gospel being preached in their own language, um, God is bridging the language bearer, barrier, and on that day, there's preaching that happens. The gospel is proclaimed, and 3,000 people become Christians on that day. And this is the event that we celebrate, and that we remember, and that we participate in today. It's called Pentecost. And as we pick up the story in Acts chapter 13, several years have passed since that day, and amazing things have happened. The church is growing in spite of all kinds of obstacles. Every day there are new believers, and also every day there are new persecutions. Many have given their lives for this Jesus. And a man who was called Saul, also called Paul, who once tried to kill Christians, who presided over the death of Stephen, uh, has turned to Christ. And here we find Paul gathered together with other believers in a fledgling church up north of Jerusalem in the city of Antioch, now modern Syria. Now listen what happens. Acts chapter 3, verse 2. They're all together. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Did you catch the movement? What what do they do? Uh, They first they get the program right. Right. They uh, 
all the lighting is perfect, and um, they make sure that they've engaged, hired the right consultants for the building campaign. No. They come together, and they pay attention to God. That's it. And what happens? Well, God has already been speaking, and so when they come together and they pay attention to God, guess what happens? They hear God speaking. And once they've heard God speaking, guess what they do? They pay attention to God some more. Um, after they, they, they hear the Holy Spirit speak, and then it says, then after fasting and praying, some more. Then they respond in obedience. It's simple yet profound. Uh, I hear so many friends tell me that they feel directionless and disconnected from God and confused about what God is doing in the world, struggling with skepticism, and a prevailing sense that, that what is at the core of this Christianity is not really real, that we're all just playing some kind of religious dance here together, with nothing real at the heart of it. And for the record, I've been in that boat too. Um, I'm not above that. I'm not proclaiming a truth here that I've mastered somehow. I'm not a guru I'm proclaiming a truth that I'm learning with you. But it's a powerful truth that God's spirit is in fact on the move and that he is speaking. He is speaking here and now. And the Pentecost pattern is really quite simple. One, join with other believers like you're all doing it right now. You already, you know, check check the box. Uh, on number one. You showed up to church today. You've joined with other believers. Pay attention to God. Worshiping, praying, fasting, emptying your mind and your heart of all of the attachments that you have so that you can hear. Sometimes uh, when I'm at home and doing the dishes, I like to listen to audiobooks and I put my little earbud in. And um, and then when Jenna, I think this probably drives her cra- you crazy love, but uh, when she'll say something to me, and do you think I can hear her when I'm listening to an audiobook? No, I, I have to like hit the little I- Apple like double tap thing and make it stop, and then we have a conversation. When your ears are already filled with everything else, you can't hear what God is saying. When your eyes are already filled with all kinds of other images, you can't see what God is saying. But that doesn't mean that he's not speaking to us. He is. He's promised that. He gave us his spirit who's leading us into all truth. So it's like, well, take the earbud out, man. It's not that hard. Join with other believers. Pay attention to God. And then when you think you hear him speaking, guess what? Pay attention some more. And then respond in obedience. And as we do this, uh, there are two guarantees. There are two guarantees. Guarantee number one, following the Holy Spirit's leading will require stepping out of safety and comfort of your, our own plans. It will require stepping out of the safety and comfort of our own plans. It will not go the way that you planned it. Uh, the Holy Spirit says, set Barnabas and Paul apart for the work that I have prepared for them. 
It's not like the Holy Spirit's like, oh, they're praying. Oh, oh dang, I got to come up with something for them. Um, I know, I'll send Bar- Paul and Barnabas out to do this thing. The Holy Spirit's not responding to them. They are responding to the Holy Spirit who's already ordained something. He's already working. He already has a plan. And this is a dangerous plan. Paul tells uh, one of his churches, the Corinthian church, uh, of what the work that God gave him to do kind of felt and looked like. And this is, what, this is how he described it. He said, I had great labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, and was often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is not an easy life. This is not your best life now. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity in a bigger house. This was a man who was on his way, rising through the religious ranks, who left all of it because he found something infinitely more valuable. It's not safe. It's not safe to follow God. And yet, guarantee number two, this is the paradox, um, Following the Holy Spirit's leading is the only safe thing. The only safe thing. There is no other safe way. Uh, Despite all these hardships, at the end of his life, Paul didn't look back and say, I wasted it all. What a waste. I spent it all on myself. I was safe. I was comfortable. You know, Jesus tells a story about this. Um, where this man, he, uh, he gets a really good grain harvest, and he fills up all his barns, and he says, well, i got to build bigger barns. I'm just going to, I'll keep building it. I know what I'll do. I'll build really big barns, and then I'll say to myself, self, you're all built up. You're good to go. Now you can rest. And that very night, God came to him and said, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. You've wasted it. That's dangerous. But Paul didn't live that way. He says, he tells his apprentice Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. What a thing to say at the end of your life. God has made us for more than safety and comfort and self-protection. We worship a Christ. We worship a Messiah who lived dangerously for us. Um, He listened to his father no matter the cost, no matter the risk. He did whatever he saw his father doing. Uh, He gave his life to redeem uh, villains and cowards like me. 
and maybe like you. And he did that to transform us into people who live these beautiful, dangerous, uh, abundant, generative lives that are full of creative, joyful expression and sometimes great cost and great sacrifice, but so much beauty that then, at the, at the end of them, don't actually end, but enter into eternity and keep on going and going and going and going and going beyond anything that your or my minds can conceive. That's what he's given us. And so that's what we're invited into. I don't know what it looks like for you. Um, maybe it means uh, embracing uh, a call to step out and serve in a place that you've never served before. Um, maybe it means inviting someone into your home. Maybe it means picking up and going to become a missionary somewhere. Maybe it means taking on a less lucrative job that you know will help someone. Or maybe it means just reaching out and having a difficult conversation that you were afraid to have. I don't know. I'm not a guru. I don't know what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. Um, but he does. And we're invited just to stop and listen and pray and to enter into that story. Uh, Corey Ten Boom and her family were ultimately caught and arrested by the Gestapo. And her sister Betsy died most likely of starvation in a concentration camp. But not before she led other women in that concentration camp to Christ. Somehow the Lord gave them a Bible in the midst of all of it, and they held worship services in the middle of a flea-infested barracks. And in the middle of this overcrowded, dirty hell on earth, a little slice of heaven came up. That's what happened. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. And Betsy said this. She said, In God's kingdom... There are no places that are safer than other places. The center of his will is our only safety. May it be so for us. Amen.